Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie. This is episode 23. We're in between emperors at the moment. This show is free and independent due to member support. And as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. If you're interested in supporting the show and helping us out, you can do so over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Chris, Andrew, and Catherine for signing up already. So the Gallic Empire has been defeated, and now Britannia was back within the folds of Rome. That was probably more than a little disheartening for the Romano-British. Once again, its rulers were on the other side of the world rather than just on the other side of the channel. The Romano-British were probably getting used to having the attention of Emperor Postumus. After all, Britannia was almost certainly the little jewel in his empire, considering how stable and prosperous it was. And now he was dead. And the empire was gone. And they were going to get neglected once again. Except it wasn't quite that black and white. As we spoke about last week, there was a massive flood of capital to Britannia, presumably from Gaul. There's also a good chance that the influx of cash brought with it changes in culture. Small farming operations might have transitioned into ranches. There probably would have been a boom in manufacturing, construction, and other related areas. After all, these rich Gallic refugees wanted villas. They wanted villas now. And the Romano-British were more than happy to build them for a price. So you probably also had booming marketplaces and whatnot. These Gallic refugees were Britannia's stimulus package. And the neat thing about this situation is that unlike the modern economy, most of the money brought into Britannia stayed there and was spent there. I mean, no one had invented outsourcing or multinational corporations, so where was it going to go? It had to stay there. Soon, all this prosperity would get the attention of Rome, and once again, Britannia would have an emperor interested in the province. But for now, Emperor Aurelian was focused on something else. Runaway inflation. Remember the trouble that Postumus was having with the debased currency, such as where silver coins were almost entirely bronze? Well, Postumus wasn't able to put a stop to it, and inflation really was getting out of control. To combat it, Emperor Aurelian decided to replace the coinage with heavier coins. But the issue here is the exchange rate, which, especially in Britannia and Gaul, was terrible. During all this imperial chaos, there just wasn't that firm of a hold on the mints, and so you ended up with incredibly debased coinage. So everybody was getting stuck with a bad exchange rate, most of all Britannia and Gaul, which makes sense, right? I mean, if you have coins that are supposed to be silver, but are mostly bronze, when you trade them in for actual silver coins, you're not going to get the new coins on a one-for-one -one basis. But while that might make sense logically, it would be an entirely different experience being ordered to hand over your bags of coins to some Roman that you've been saving for ages and only getting a few coins in return. And remember, Britannia was wealthy at this time, and you know what enrages the rich? Messing with their pots of gold. They're like leprechauns in that respect. So there was a rebellion in both provinces. 
because both provinces had terrible exchange rates. And, of course, it was put down, and we don't have a ton of information on it because we're in the dim ages, but the fact that it happened at all tells us that Britannia was still anything but pacified. Shortly after the British Gallic Currency Rebellion, Emperor Aurelian died. He outlived the Gallic Empire by just one year. And now it was up to Emperor Probus to continue his work. And we begin to see a new sense of Roman interest in Britannia, especially in the matter of the Saxon shore. You see, this issue of rebellion and violence wasn't in its traditional zones any longer. For as long as any living person in Britannia could remember, the main point of fear had been from the north. That's why the wall was built and why it was patrolled. That was why there had been so many emperors leading their legions north to fight the unconquered tribes. The north and the Scottish tribes were the source of danger in Britannia. And if it wasn't up there, it was in Wales. Basically, the hot zones were the Celtic regions. But things were changing. The region near the wall was becoming safer. We know that because civilian settlements close to the wall forts were cropping up, which was probably because that region was still very well patrolled. So the wall was working, right? Well, here's the problem with that tactic. The methods of war were changing. Britannia's enemies were no longer throwing themselves at Britannia's well-defended northern border. They were finding ways around it. Meanwhile, other tribes from the continent were hearing of this incredibly rich land that was begging to be raided. Britannia was prosperous, sure, but in comparison with the continent, it was downright rich. Don't forget that while the continent was ravaged by decades of internal and external strife within the Roman world, Britannia was largely left out of it. Everywhere in Europe, there was non-stop fighting. But in Britannia, it was mostly farming and trade. And as I mentioned, those who were wealthy enough to travel most likely fled with their riches to Britannia. So the areas that were being ravaged by war were getting poorer and poorer, while the peaceful area of Britannia was getting richer and richer. All in all, this was remarkably convenient for the seafaring raiding tribes, since now most of the wealth of the Northwest was getting concentrated on this island. And unlike the ancient Romans, these barbarians weren't afraid to cross the channel. Needless to say that these barbarian raids, provided that they weren't being directed at the well-fortified frontiers, were remarkably effective. So while the history of conflict in Roman Britannia had been largely focused on the north and the west, now governors were changing gears and looking to the south and east, to the shore. This began in the Gallic Empire, as you recall, but it didn't stop there. Raiders realized that they had a good thing going and weren't about to let a change of management interrupt their fun. So no longer is Romano-Britannia focused on the wall. Instead, it's fortifying the country itself, especially on the Saxon shore. Now, I keep on mentioning the Saxon shore. I'm not entirely sure if that term was used at the time. Saxon shore is a term that originates from the 5th century document listing forts of the area that were under the command of the Comus Latoris Saxonici, the Count of the Saxon Shore. Anyway, so Britannia Superior, remember there was Britannia Superior and Britannia Inferior, Britannia Superior was more at risk than Britannia Inferior for the first time in its history. 
So that's fun. To cope with this, the governor probably had his troops concentrated into several medium-sized units and spread them out across a relatively small number of forts in the south. He would have wanted his forces to be large enough to decisively defeat any threat, but since that threat could come from anywhere, and there were only so many troops to go around, he had to spread them out throughout the south. Meanwhile, the governor would be safe in London, protected by its fort and its new stone walls. So, good for him. But here's where things get sort of interesting in Britannia. Rather than demolishing the wood and earth walls in other cities that had been built, which would have been a pretty smart move given that the region had only recently rebelled against Rome twice, instead the larger cities were provided with an upgrade. They were given stone walls. Think about that. We've got a region that has been the thorn in the side of Rome for hundreds of years, broke off from the Roman Empire twice in the last hundred years, and immediately rebelled over the new coinage system. And the response of the Roman government was to fortify the cities of these rebellious people. It boggles the mind a little, doesn't it? It might be that the Roman government didn't want another uprising and suspected that if they knocked down the British defenses, that they'd have a rebellion on their hands. But that doesn't really seem likely. They didn't just leave the defenses standing, after all. They improved them, substantially. Maybe the threat of raiders was so acute and overwhelming that to protect the cities, they needed to create circuit walls since the legionary forces were so few and far between. That's possible. But it seems that the stone walls were built at a leisurely pace that took about 50 years. If the barbarians were such an enormous threat, I imagine that there would have been a sudden spike in rapid construction, you know? I mean, why take your time if you're constantly under threat of being under siege by these raiders? So my guess is that these towns were gradually turned into additional strong points for the legions, not for the people. See, with this plan of defense, all around the south, you'd have a strongly fortified base with large numbers of buildings for the legions to quickly requisition in case of an emergency, just on hand, because obviously cities were all over the place, so they'd be nearby. So rather than having forts that would need to be built and demolished, every city could become a fort in a pinch. It was a risky move considering that the Britons weren't entirely loyal. After all, they would occasionally throw their lot in with a pretender... But by and large, they weren't given to armed insurrection against Roman life. They were pretty effectively Romanized. So the government probably wasn't concerned with the risk of a general rebellion against all Romans and Roman life. At most, it was just a worry that they would rebel against a particular emperor. But typically when that happened, they'd prop up a governor or someone from the legions as their new emperor. So why would the legions care? A rebellion like that isn't too bad. So on the whole, I think it was an effective move for the military in Britannia. You had a bunch of strongholds, and worst case scenario, uh, you've got a bunch of strongholds that you can use when you're rebelling against the Romans. Anyway, let's get back to the story. So Emperor Probus was in Gaul, putting down uprisings over there and generally doing what he could to hold the Roman Empire together. As he was fighting, he was taking prisoners of war from the Vandals and the Burgundians and then settling them in Britannia. Fun. But while most of Probus' campaign was going okay, he did have a problem in the form of one of his military leaders. Bonosus. 
The problem was that Bonosus basically fell asleep at the wheel, and as a result, the Roman fleet that was based at Cologne was destroyed by the barbarians. So Bonosus did the one thing a military leader could do when facing serious punishment at the hands of an enraged emperor. He declared himself emperor. Now that didn't last too long, but it did have an impact on Britannia. Right about that same time, the governor of Britannia rebelled. Now, was that because of an alliance with Bonosis? Was it because of frustration and all these damn dirty continentals being settled in Britannia? Or was it just opportunism? I don't know. But the fact was that Britannia was once again in rebellion. Or at least part of it was. So Emperor Probus sent a Moorish officer by the name of Victorinus to deal with the problem. Now, this was a little awkward for Victorinus. The rebelling governor of Britannia got the position on the strength of a recommendation from one of Emperor Probus's inner circle. Yep, he got that job because Victorinus recommended him. Now, writing a recommendation for a friend only to find out that they did a terrible job is nothing new. It happens all the time. And if it happens to you, it's frustrating as hell. Well, as frustrated as he must have been, I doubt he was looking forward to the confrontation where he would, in all likelihood, have to kill his friend. So Victorinus, with the assistance of the Vandal and Burgundian settlers in Britannia, put down the rebellion and his friend. It was a bad day to be Victorinus. So let that be a lesson to all of you. Be careful who you write recommendations for. You can just tell him something like, look, I'd love to write you a recommendation, but I'm worried about what this will do for our friendship. I mean, if you end up getting fired, I don't want to find myself marching at the head of a continental army with orders to kill you. It would be awkward. So, could you just ask someone else? I guarantee you that your friend will never ask you for a recommendation again. So the rebellion was over, and things went back to normal. Probus was marching around and kicking butt, and then sending those who had their butts so recently kicked to Britannia to settle there, and then he allowed them to join the legions. Wait, there really is nothing normal about this, is there? And it kind of makes me wonder what on earth Probus was thinking. You've got a rebellious island, so you take your prisoners of war from rebellions on the continent, put them on the island, then give them weapons and armor, have them join the army, train them, and just hope it's going to work out okay? That same army that's repeatedly rebelled against Rome? Who does that? Well, apparently Probus. Fortifying the rebellious locals, relocating other rebellious populations to the area. <laughs> what could go wrong? So now we're at around 281 AD, by the way, for those of you who are keeping score at home. And actually, upon reflection, taking the continental barbarians and making them serve in the military in Britannia might not have been as crazy as it seems at first. By now, the legions had served in Britannia for centuries. They had deep roots within the British community, and many had absolutely no ties to the Romans, other than their jobs, training, and uniforms. They were much closer to the British than to the Romans. Consequently, these Vandals and Burgundians would be ideal forces to be used for internal problems, since while the British legions cared about the islanders, the Vandals and the Burgundians probably couldn't care less. Sending the legions to put down locals could be dangerous since they might turn on you. 
sending scruffy barbarians from the continent, on the other hand, didn't carry nearly as much risk. And it is possible that Probus was dealing with a number of internal issues in Britannia at this time, since around this period there were several sites in Sussex that were burned down. Of course, that might have also been due to sea raiders, we just don't know. Either way, I suppose having some armed barbarians working for the government wasn't a terrible idea. I mean, they could kill the Britons if they got rowdy, they could kill the sea raiders if they showed up, and at least, you know, they weren't trying to kill the Romans. So yeah, maybe it was a good idea. At least, until they decided they didn't want to take orders anymore. Or at least they didn't want to take any orders from the Romans anymore. But ultimately, Probus and his strange barbarian policy was effective. The rebellions in the west were largely put down, and now he could focus his attention on the east and leave our little island alone. But while he was marching to the east, his praetorian prefect, Carus, declared himself emperor. Once again, it's the praetorians. What is it with these guys? So Probus tried to put a stop to Carus, but his own soldiers switched sides and killed him. And once again, we've got chaos in the empire. There are some emperors and some Roman intrigue here, but we're just going to focus on Carinus. Not Carus, the Praetorian Prat, but Carinus, said Prat's son. Carinus was left in charge of the Western Empire as Caesar, while his father, the Augustus, handled more pressing matters. So Carinus pursued a fairly energetic policy against the barbarians, which we know of because of an inscription from 282 or 283, in which he suddenly has new titles, Britannicus Maximus and Germanicus Maximus. Now these titles likely refer to external victories rather than to an internal rebellion. And actually, the Britannicus title probably didn't even involve a British land battle. And he might never have set foot in Britannia, but he's got the title of Britannicus Maximus, so we're going to talk about him. So the thought is that the victory that gave him the title was probably a naval military success in the Channel. After all, we're fairly certain that there were quite a lot of raids going along the Channel at this time, and actually the British fleet was often based at Boulogne. So Carinus would have been able to stay in continental Europe, deal with the Germanic raids, and then also be able to send the fleet to crush the raiders in the Channel without ever having to set foot in the island. So there you go. We've got Carinus, the son of the Praetorian usurper, who is a Britannicus Maximus. Good for him. Anyway, Carus and his son didn't last too long. The History of Rome podcast can probably give you more information if you want it. But for our purposes, all that matters is that in the end, Emperor Diocletian reigned supreme by about 285. Now around this same time, the Bacaude rode up. Who and what were the Bacaude, you're asking? Well, it's pretty hard to say. We know that they were responsible for significant troubles in Gaul. But who were they? Roman sources say that they were refugees, deserters, disaffected Gallic citizens, criminals, rebels, old soldiers, and the like. And now they were bound together and acting as brigands. Probably because the economy in Gaul was crushed, the lands were in constant turmoil, and it seemed that no one can keep them safe from the violence of invasion, civil war, and the general chaos that racked the region. So we've got the Bacaude. And the rise of the Bacaude almost certainly drove ever-increasing numbers of wealthy citizens from Gaul to Britannia. These guys were certainly becoming a problem for Rome, 
and for Gaul. They were actually kind of good for Britain. Anyway, Gaul couldn't rebuild and stabilize so long as the brigands were running around stealing and burning everything. So Emperor Diocletian sent Maximian to deal with it. And that's exactly what he did. Soon thereafter, the Bacaude were defeated, and actually, Maximian, because it was such an impressive feat, was promoted to co-emperor. Now, Emperor Diocletian had enough of the chaos that came from the uncertainty regarding imperial succession, so he split his empire in half and made it mandatory that there would always be two Augusti and two Caesars. From now on, there'd be what's called a tetrarchy, with Diocletian and his Caesar ruling the east, and Maximian and his Caesar ruling the west. Of course, Diocletian was the senior Augustus. He wasn't going to go and say that he was on equal footing with Maximian, but in theory, the four were supposed to rule together, roughly. So Maximian had the West, and despite the fact that the Pacaude were dealt with, the assignment of the Western Empire was still no easy task. He had the Saxons to deal with, he had the Franks to deal with, he had internal troubles. It was a mess. So he had a trusted officer. This guy was from humble birth in a region that would end up becoming Belgium, and he was a very talented officer. And so he put him in charge of dealing with the rebels. This man's name was Mauseus Carousius. Now, despite his low birth, he was a gifted leader and tactician. He defeated the raiders time and time again. On many occasions, he arrived at the perfect time, almost as if he knew where they would be. But almost always, he would catch them on their way back from their raids, rather than catching them on their borders to prevent the impending raid. And after a while, rumors began to fly. Was this man letting the raiders through, only to defeat them so he could claim the loot himself? I mean, once he recovered the stolen goods, people were saying that he didn't hand them over to the government or the provincials who owned them. He just kept it. He kept all the stolen goods. Well, news of this reached Maximian, and the emperor did what he had to do. He ordered the death of Carousius in 286. You can see where this is going, can't you? This is why it's important to read history, because it repeats itself. So Carousius fled to Britannia, and yep, you guessed it, declared himself emperor. And he created a separate empire based in Britannia that was virtually Roman in all ways, much like the Gallic Empire was. And once again, Britannia had its own emperor. All right, let's stop right there. As I mentioned last week, we're coming up on episode 25. We're going to do a listener mail extravaganza for episode 25. So if you have any questions that you'd like to have answered, whether they're about Britain during the Romano period or whether it's about Britain in any other period, or even if it's about something else, uh, go ahead and email me. You can email me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com with your questions. You can also join in in the conversation on facebook.com slash British History, or head over to thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And I also wanted to mention to you that my mother-in-law, as well as listener Meredith, have pointed out that National Geographic this month has a special on medieval Britain. So if you're interested in checking that out, you definitely should do so. I'm going to do the same. And I think that's about it. So thanks for listening, everybody. 